When I traveled to Asia for the first time, one of the things I looked forward to most was the chance to see elephants in the wild. From chatting with other travelers, this desire to see wildlife is super common. There's something really special about seeing animals that you've never encountered before in real life. Wildlife is a big part of tourism, but there are many different ways that wildlife and tourism intersect. One of those ways is zoos. Zoos are found all over the world and, well, they're controversial. Some people argue that animals in zoos suffer physically and mentally by being enclosed, but on the flip side, zoos can support conservation and they make learning about wildlife much more accessible. Today on Curious Tourism, the Responsible Travel Podcast, we're going to get the scoop on zoos. Is it ethical to visit a zoo at all? And how do you know which zoos are worth visiting? Here to answer our burning questions is Stacia Locke. She is a travel blogger and wildlife tourism podcaster at Humane Nature Podcast, where she discussed the nitty gritty of animal tourism worldwide. Is this the first time that you've listened to Curious Tourism, the Responsible Travel Podcast? If so, make sure that you've hit the follow button right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, because there is plenty more to come this season. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram at Curious Tourism Pod. You can DM us or email us anytime. All of our contact info is in the episode description. All right, Aaron, I think it's time we talk about airplanes and more than just pilots, but the airline industry. I was going to say, we talked about airplanes like two episodes ago. No, things are going down with airplanes, and I am starting to question how reliable they're going to be in the future. So let me just give you the first part of this. So an article recently came out, and here's here's the the headline, because the headline just gives you everything you need to know. So the FAA in the United States has ordered an emergency meeting to address near collisions. Basically, there has been, to an emergency level of an extent, planes have nearly been crashing into each other over airports in the United States. Almost 2,000 collisions happened last year, which is so scary to think about. (laughs) And they're chalking this up to the fact that there is an understaffing of uh, air traffic controllers. That means a lot of air traffic controllers that exist out there right now are also overworked. So they're too tired and they're getting confused and making mistakes. So that is one of the first issues of airplanes right now. So what are your thoughts? What do you think? Were you ever scared to go on an airplane? And are you now? Yeah. (laughs) It's just like, because logically I know, because everyone's read the stats, like every time you get into a car, it's much more of a risk than getting into an airplane. I know this logically, but just planes, they feel unnatural. (laughs) It's just unnatural to go up in the air like that. I usually feel pretty safe on planes, but like every flight I take, I'm going to have at least a two-minute existential crisis of thinking, like, I am in a tube in the sky. I'm going to admit something. It's always when I'm hungover on a plane (laughs) that my brain goes to bad places. It's the anxiety, man. The anxiety, it'll take you down. It will. And sometimes the plane. No kidding. We know (laughs) from joy. We know from joy that... Pilots are very, very healthy people. Can Joy just like fly every plane that I ever take for the rest of my life? Well, what we need is Joy also doing the air traffic controlling (laughs) because that is what seems to be the problem. Okay. Not to get like nitpicky about this, but I think like the key phrase here is there were almost 2,000 collisions. Yes. So there weren't any. And technically they're called runway incursions. This is the formal term for it. Okay, that makes me feel better. It didn't happen. It almost happened. But there were 46 runway incursions in the month of July this year alone. So near... Luckily, I don't fly in America very often. I'm just going to assume that it's safer in Canada. (laughs) 
<laughs> You're just chalking this up to U.S. flights. <laughs> I have too much generalized anxiety to think about this. It's true. I'm so sorry to do this to you. <laughs> this is the FAA said the U.S. aviation system is the safest in the world, but one close call is too many. Which? Agree. Agree. <laughs> Fully agree. Listen, it always comes down to the same thing. Workers' rights. These workers deserve more rights. They deserve better working conditions. It's all top down. It's all top down. Yep. I said it last time on the pod. Capitalism will get you every time. This is secretly an anti-capitalist podcast. (laughs) I don't think it's a secret. (laughs) Okay. Let me get into the other airline issues that are happening right now. There's more. So basically, also, we know that these massive wildfires have been happening in um, Hawaii recently. And of course, locals are telling people not to show up. But I saw a TikTok video that was a flight that was on its way to Hawaii. And they made an announcement over it saying that, like, once you arrive, things are in pretty dire conditions. Like, you're going to need to find shelter. Like, things are pretty intense because we're using our resources for locals, all of that stuff. And a bunch of people got up and walked off the plane. Hold up. So this was like before the flight took off. So basically people had the choice to say, okay, like I'm going to go anyways, or I'm going to get off the plane and like not yeah. go on my trip. Yes. Okay. So they kind of gave everybody a warning. A bunch of people got up and walked. The guy that took the video was a guy who was staying and he was sort of mocking all the people that were leaving, which, you know, I'm pretty sure you and I, our firm beliefs are get off the plane. <laughs> I mean, listen, to be honest, you wouldn't catch me on a plane to Hawaii anyways, because Hawaii has been asking people not to come. But At least I mean... for a year now. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then, okay, so then the other part of this is that here's another headline from Travel Pulse. Airlines issue travel waivers ahead of Hurricane Hillary. So Southwest Airlines has if- issued travel waivers for people who are getting on flights to basically say, like, we're cool and we're not going to sue the company if we fly through a hurricane. (laughs) So basically all of these things, flying into wildfires, flying into hurricanes, it's just making me feel like airlines may no longer be the safest form of travel and or that reliable. So I don't know. What are your thoughts? Like climate change, it's happening. The world is on fire. Hurricanes, all of that stuff. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Okay, I'll start by saying first, the safety thing. I don't think like an airline would fly purposefully through a hurricane. You don't? No, (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think so either. (laughs) I think they would definitely take a different route. (laughs) But those air traffic controllers, you never know. Maybe there wasn't enough people on the ground to tell them to take a different route. You never know. Okay, all I'm getting at is I think like safety is like a, like n- the least of our worries. Because I actually read an article recently about this. I'd have to find it back. But it was just commenting on how climate change really is going to impact flying. Because as we've seen like this summer in North America, like we have had burning wildfires in northern Canada now, like basically the entire summer. And that has impacted flight patterns. So yeah, I think like... <laughs> in the coming decades, like this will just become more and more and more of a problem. And I think the biggest impact it'll have is probably that we'll just see like flying becoming less and less reliable. Because like, if you're meant to fly to BC and a forest fire begins, and they have to change the flight route, or they can't land at the airport, your flights will be delayed or canceled. We'll probably mostly see that. That's what this article was arguing. Mm-hmm. Another interesting angle, though, is like, I wonder what this means for like travel insurance. Like, will insurance yeah. cover like for trips, like when there is some sort of natural disaster that impacts your ability to travel somewhere? This is what I'm wondering, too. I'm like, what about cancellation fees and stuff like that? So, For this hurricane story, airlines are waiving the change fees and fare differences for travelers who are scheduled to fly. So obviously, this means that they're being much more accommodating for people who are like, yeah, I don't really feel like flying through a hurricane, which I like to see. 
But I'm wondering if this is going to be a thing in the future because maybe this is just going to be much more common and it's sort of like fly at your own risk, you know? Well, and I think it actually goes beyond that because honestly, like even so, for example, as you know, I'm going to BC this fall. One of the reasons we decided not to go in the summer, which is like nicer weather, is because it seemed risky because every year for the last three years, my brother who lives out there has gone through heat domes and also fires. <laughs> and so it, I feel like there's a shift in Canada where people are saying, okay, like summer isn't the best time to go to BC anymore mm-hmm. because there's a risk of these like natural disasters. And that's literally why we were like, okay, we'll go in the fall. Like seems like a safer bet. I think it's going to change like people's travel patterns, honestly. Totally. I'm even thinking about it for my trip to the East Coast, which at time of recording, this episode will be out already once I've already come back. So we will see mm-hmm. what happens. Mm-hmm. But um, last year, just uh, around September, there was a massive hurricane on that side. And that's when I'm going is going to be in, in September. So I've been kind of a little bit nervous about that over the last like couple of months being like, man, it is technically hurricane season. I don't know if it was smart for us to go. But so far, I haven't heard too much about anything happening and I'm leaving in eight days so so far so good but you know I don't know it's it's totally going to change the way people plan their trips for sure yeah same with the heat wave in Europe there was a massive heat wave what two years ago last year there was one this year and Mm -hmm. I actually saw a whole reddit thread in the travel subreddit about this this person arguing like summer is no longer the best time to go to Europe because Europe can't cope with the heat. This is the thing. I think a lot of people like don't think of heat as like a very disruptive or dangerous natural disaster. Some people may not not even think of it as a natural disaster, but like actually like high temperatures like kill a lot of people. Like it's extremely dangerous and it really will impact your trip. Like the subreddit thread, this guy was just saying it completely ruined the trip. Like they couldn't do things because it was too hot to safely go outside. And this is becoming like an annual thing in Europe. So I actually think we might see like seasonality for some places around the world change. Like I think more and more people are starting to view September, October as the best time to go to Europe because it's still really warm, but you don't have a risk of a heat dome. Mm -hmm. Just like it's changing for BC. Climate change. Climate change, man. Yeah, pretty time. <laughs> I've been trying to think of ways to make our like the things we talk about a little bit more exciting, but like it's difficult <laughs> these days, you know? It's yeah. really difficult. Luckily, our discussion about zoos is actually an upbeat one and a lot of fun, and mm-hmm. it made me really hopeful for animal tourism. So, I think we should just get into it. Yeah, let's do it. Stacia, tell me about your love of animals. I'm sure that you, like many of us, fell in love with them as a child, but you grew up and made a career out of it, whereas I just grew up and became a cat lady. I mean, I'm also a cat lady. He's laying Aww. right next to me, um, <laughs> just chilling out. And uh, people who are um, like following me on Twitter and Instagram and everything, they see him like every Saturday for Catter Day. I'm like, here's my cat. <laughs> <laughs> What's your cat's name? His name is Loki. Aww, he's a, a he's a big name. boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, my parents had like their test baby in the form of a puppy before I came along. And so I grew up with a dog. Um, I had like different pets and everything growing up. But when I was in, I think the sixth grade, we had an outdoor cat who became pregnant. And I did all this like online research as a sixth grader. And so when she started to give birth, I was like with her and she had a baby that was like stillborn and breached and she couldn't pass on her own. (gasps) And because I had done all this like online research, I was like, oh, I know what to do. And I was like, I don't know, like 10, is it 10? I don't know, sixth grade. But I helped guide this like stillborn kitten out um, to help my cat and I was so proud of myself. And I went in to school the next day and told everybody what I did. And they're like, Stacia, that's the most disgusting thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and they're like, you should be a vet. And I was like, well, okay. 
I worked with animals all through high school. Uh, I was like the head of like caretaker for the animals at like a local pets, like family owned pet store. And I worked in a horse stables in high school and I worked at a zoo for a while. Uh, And then I got my job as a vet tech down in um, Florida where I was going to school. And I was originally going to go to vet school, but ultimately uh, decided to leave vet med because I just decided it wasn't really for me anymore. But I kind of transitioned into what I'm doing now, which is educating people on animal and wildlife tourism, the do's and don'ts and like the science behind why we don't do certain things rather than like going for the more emotional side, like kind of the PETA vibe to things that aren't really scientifically accurate or any of that stuff. That's amazing. What a what an awesome pass into the work you're doing <laughs> Thank now. You. <laughs> I love vet techs. Whenever I go to the vet with my cat, I just like have the best time with them because they're always the sweetest people and they treat like my cat so well. It's so nice. Like they all know her vet name. Vet techs are some and, of the like, best people. They I've really are. Met. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I know you had a life-changing veterinary internship in Chiang Mai in Thailand. Could you tell us a bit about that trip and what made it have such a big impact on you? Yeah, so uh, in college, my so my school was very weird. We actually didn't have class all through January, and every student had to do an independent study project all through January rather than going to class, and that was just kind of how the college was set up. So I think it was my sophomore or junior year of college, I decided for my independent study project, I was going to go abroad and do this veterinary internship in Chiang Mai working with, it was a week with dogs in like a, it was like a shelter where they took dogs off the street because there's a really big problem with that. Give them medical care, spay, neuter, and try to adopt them out. Or they would live there for the rest of their lives. And then a week on an elephant rescue working with Not just elephants, but they had like dogs, cats, water buffalo. There was a goat, some like mini horses and stuff, but mostly with the elephants there. It was a cool place. When I got there, they really hammered in on educating their visitors on why we don't ride elephants, why we don't go to circuses and and shows that have elephants performing and why. Like the big reason was why, like how this impacts them biologically like the way that their backs are shaped for example for elephant riding or conservationly or all this other stuff how the tourism factor is impacting elephants especially in Thailand because that's where a lot of them live and that's where elephant tourism is really really big but around the rest of the world as well and this was at the Elephant Nature Park, who's run by a incredible woman named Lek Chilert, which I actually did a kind of wildlife warrior segment on her in my own podcast. She is trailblazing and completely changing elephant tourism and educating people all over Thailand and the rest of Southeast Asia. So after that, that was really my first big trip abroad too. So one, I fell in love with travel. And two, I really fell in love with the idea of educating people in a scientific way on how to treat animals better within the tourism vector rather than like going to vet school. So I kind of started to lean away from that and more towards the tourism aspect of it. That's awesome. I People often ask, especially because we bring this topic up a lot on our platforms, they'll ask like, where's a good place to go to see elephants? Because of course, like anyone traveling in Southeast Asia wants to have this experience. And Elephant Nature Park is the one I always tell people because that's like definitely the most tried and true one that I've, I've read about personally. One thing that I actually was reading about recently is about how I think it's like half of elephants in Thailand now are domesticated and there's only a couple thousand left that are wild in Thailand. Do you know if there's any um, experiences in Thailand where you can go and like observe wild elephants? I don't remember coming across this when I was traveling there. There are there. I don't remember the names of them, but there are some like national parks where there are like they're kind of protected areas for wild elephants kind of like when you go on African safaris and stuff and there are wild elephants there but it is very difficult to see 
an elephant in the wild <laughs> shockingly like yeah. they are massive but like they are so good at hiding and navigating through the forest to the point where we never really see them yeah and they also are so smart they always know where the people like to hang out and so they tend to avoid those areas so it's very difficult to see a wild elephant but i do kind of want to point out real quick that um just because an elephant is in captivity doesn't mean it's domesticated. So domestication happens over like thousands of years, how we get dogs and cats. But these are so like training and domestication are different. So an elephant who has been trained to perform or has been living with people for its entire life isn't is still technically a wild animal. So even though it is in captivity. So yeah, because domestication is more so that the animal has become like part of um, human life, like in the way that dogs and mm -hmm. cats have. Yeah, domestication occurs through selective breeding over like multiple generations. And there are, I think, I read a study that they are in the beginning stages of domestication for some elephants because they have been in captivity for so long and then they get bred and then their babies stay in the same family and then their babies get stay in the, stay in the same family. It just hasn't been long enough. And domestication, like, like dogs and wolves, there is a distinct difference between the domesticated animal and then their wild counterpart and they just haven't reached that yet with the with the elephants in the process of that yeah but uh, sorry it's just a little tangent <laughs> no that was a great tangent and really important point um now i just need to tangent about how when i was in munar india which is a hill station in southern india i had the rare experience of seeing wild elephants like actually in the wild and it was incredible Oh, that's amazing. I want to see wild elephants so bad. And I know it's a little easier in Africa. You're so lucky that you got to see a wild Asian elephant. Like we were on this trek and, and our guide kept like pointing out like elephant tracks. And he was like, yeah, like we're going to see lots of these tracks and we'll see lots of their poo, but we're not going to see them. And we just like completely lucked out. Um, so back in 2019, we talked on the show with Natasha Daly. I think it's episode 30, so it's quite a ways back now. But we chatted with her about the industry around animal tourism. We focused mostly in that discussion on elephant sanctuaries, and we framed those as being animal tourism experiences. So I know you've written about how there's a distinction between animal tourism and wildlife tourism. Could you explain why they're different and why it's so important to separate them? Yeah, so the difference isn't as big as most people think. People kind of assume that animal tourism is a negative thing and wildlife tourism is a positive thing. I like to kind of explain to it as it's all animal tourism. Animal tourism is basically just tourism that involves animals in general. People go travel somewhere in order to see animals. So that could be bird watching in your local park. That could be going to an African safari. That could be riding elephants in Thailand. But wildlife tourism is a little more niche where you're going specifically to see wildlife versus going to like a zoo or going to like an animal cafe in Tokyo, things like that. So yeah, wildlife tourism is just a little more niche where you're going to see an animal in their natural habitat. And there are both ethical and unethical ways to do both of them. But in general, wildlife tourism does tend to be a little bit more ethical because they are in their natural habitats rather than in captivity, because that's when you can fall into the trap of like roadside zoos and fake rescues and and things like that are doing a lot of these unethical practices that are actively harming the animals but animal tourism where they are in captivity can be ethical as well okay that makes sense i've noticed especially online that there is growing awareness about animal and wildlife tourism especially in the last few years and like Actually, like I've chatted with my parents about this because they they backpacked around the world in the 80s and they have told me they were like, it was completely different. They were like, when you were in India, like riding an elephant was a given, like everyone did that and no one questioned it. Whereas today, like there's lots more discussion around it. I see like it talked about on social platforms quite a lot now, but I'm noticing that a lot of the discussions are focused 
around the harm of animal and wildlife tourism. And I know from chatting with Natasha Daly and also with James Mwenda, who's a conservationist in Kenya and came on the podcast, I think two seasons ago, I can't remember now. But anyways, chatting with both of them, they did like emphasize that there, this type of tourism does have the potential to do good as well. So I was hoping you could talk a bit about like what some of those positive impacts are um, when it comes to both animal and wildlife tourism. Yeah, so it's kind of a fine line that you have to walk with these things. The biggest thing is that po- these positive wildlife and animal tourism experiences do bring in money. Like that's the biggest issue with a lot of, you know, conservation research, all of that good stuff. Ethical animal tourism and wildlife tourism will bring in money to protect habitats uh, from habitat loss or breeding programs for endangered species or protecting them from poachers, like hiring people like guards and things around like the critically endangered animals in Africa. All that stuff is money derived basically directly from either donations or animal tourism. And most of it is from animal tourism. And it also provides a lot of really important education. There are a lot of animal species out there that people don't really even think about that are really struggling to survive. And when people participate in these experiences that involve a lot of really good education, then they know, they know that animal exists, they know what's harming them, and they can tell other people and spread that. They can be more inclined to donate money and time later on. There have been studies that show that people are much more likely, like 80% or something more likely to donate money or volunteer for animal species or conservation if they have a direct experience with that animal in the past. So that could be seeing them in a zoo and being educated that way, seeing them while out as a tourist. So it's very important just to get these images of the animals out there and then to raise as much money as possible. And a lot of these animal tourism destinations also bring in a lot of money for the local communities as well, and which is very, very important, especially in these rural areas. Uh, but you do have to walk that fine line between bringing in just enough tourists to bring in that money and the education and then bringing in so many tourists that you get a lot of hotels and restaurants popping up and there's a lot of pollution from trash but also the increase in in travel to the area so it's a it's a very fine line but it can bring a lot of really good benefits i mean Right now, my partner and I are researching going on a safari in Eastern Africa. And one of the things that's come up is like how expensive it is. And we were just reading like the reason these experiences are expensive is because they're trying to avoid going into like the harmful territory. So by charging a lot of money, like it kind of controls how many people can come because only so many people will be willing to spend the money. And then they can still derive like the benefits of funding without having to bring a huge volume of people in. Right. And that's awesome. But that's also how a lot of these unethical destinations pop up because they will almost like copy the other company's website and charge like half as much to lure people in and take their money, which sucks. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. These places like charging more for these ethical experiences totally valid because they've got people to pay, they've got animals to protect, and they've got habitat to protect. But people will see the potential of earning money and stealing the tourists away. And they've become so good with advertising and everything that most people just don't realize that they're going to about like I've even like knowing all this stuff and I've studied this at school and I have like a degree in it I still find myself in some places that leave me feeling kind of gross after and I will just try to let as many people know as possible but they've gotten so good at it and you really have to know your stuff to to be able to weed through the bad I know okay I'm gonna just say I had an experience in Florida actually that was like this where it was manatee viewing is like a big thing in Florida I researched to find the most responsible manatee viewing experience 
And the things I saw happen on that tour, like my alarm bells were going off the entire time. And I was so disappointed because we had paid extra money to go with this company that like everyone claimed was the most responsible. And still like this was happening. It's it's so hard. Like it feels impossible sometimes. Yeah. Something I like to say basically every episode on my show is don't be that asshole. Like don't. <laughs> Be that asshole who slams other people if they just didn't know. If someone doesn't know that riding elephants is bad and then they go and do it, don't be a jerk to them and just let them know, educate them, and then they won't do it again. But also don't be that asshole who, when you know something is bad and then you do it anyway for like the pictures or because it's cheaper or just to see that animal because you don't want to be bothered to do the more difficult research to go for a more ethical option. So yeah, I was but. just gonna say, Aaron, did you leave a review so people know about your bad vibes? Because that's one thing we did learn from Natasha Daly. Yes, I definitely left nice. a review. <laughs> <laughs> Not a mean review, just like a heads up. An informative review. Yeah. yeah. That's what I always suggest, too, is to contact any authorities that you can that may have a say in what's going on. Leave reviews on every possible platform you can that's advertising this experience. And then word of mouth, just letting people know. If people stop going, the hope is that they'll go out of business and be replaced by something more ethical or they'll change their practices and themselves become a, a better place to visit. Okay, so Stacia, we wanted to have you on to talk about a very specific type of animal tourism, and that is zoos. And we're not going to just talk about zoos, we're going to talk about roadside zoos. Could you explain what a zoo is and what a roadside animal attraction or roadside zoo is? What are the major differences between them? And is one better than the other? I think I know what you're going to say, but let's lay it out so everyone is on the same page. Yeah, so the big difference is there are AZA accredited zoos, and then there are like roadside zoo attractions. So the AZA stands for the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and it's mostly in the United States, but it's kind of the governing body of the good zoos in the country and in some other countries as well, where they have all these qualifications that they need to meet in order to earn and keep their accreditation. And that's not to say that every single zoo that's not AZA accredited is a roadside zoo. Like some of them are actively trying to be accredited. There's a lot of them out there. It takes like a minimum of six months to gain that accreditation after you have all of the qualifications. And there's a very lengthy list. It's a very prestigious thing for zoos and aquariums to earn. And and as a general rule, if a zoo has that AZA accreditation, they're a great place to visit. I have visited some that maybe still had a couple of exhibits that were a little questionable, but overall, they were doing really amazing work. And I made some notes. So yeah, AZA accredited zoos, there's a huge board, uh, the AZA board that is full of biologists, conservationists, veterinarians, and uh, animal behaviorists, animal nutritionists, all these people who are expert in their fields. And they are constantly changing and updating what is needed for these zoos to be good. And if you look at one zoo like 10, 15, 20 years ago, they may have been doing things that at the time we didn't really know were wrong or unethical. But as the AZA updates with all the research that they're doing, all of their zoos under the accreditation are required to apply those updates within a few years, I believe. So I do have a list of the things that they look for, uh, the inspectors look for before they can be accredited. And they are also 
inspected every few years in order to maintain that accreditation. So they can't just earn it and then like let things fall to pieces afterwards. So they need to have proper living environments for all the animals and enrichment for all the animals, good social groupings, updated animal health and nutrition based on the current science, a good veterinary program within the zoo, so not outsourcing any of it, involvement in conservation and research programs, a zoo education program, up-to-date zoo safety and security, guest services and facilities, and good quality zoo staff, which is why I have applied so many times to be a, a zookeeper at ACA zoos and haven't even gotten an interview because it's so competitive and they are mm. so strict on the people that they let in. Another big distinction between an AZA zoo and a roadside zoo is a roadside zoo is meant to earn money. They That's their, their goal is to earn money while an AZA zoo is a nonprofit. So the money that you pay for the tickets goes directly to paying the zookeepers or for the concert. Only 10% of the zoos in the United States, at least, are AZA accredited. And a lot of them also participate in breeding programs for endangered species. So they will do the breeding programs either to help supply other AZA zoos with that animal or to release that animal into the wild or maybe to improve the genetic diversity of that animal. So God forbid there was like a disease outbreak, they wouldn't all be wiped out because of it. So... A lot of roadside zoos will claim that they donate money to conservation or they do research or all these things, but they have no data to really back it up. So on AZA websites, if you, they'll always have a tab about their conservation and outreach programs, and they will have data and very specific things like what they're doing and why they're doing it and who's work who they're working with and how to get involved and be a volunteer and all that whereas a roadside zoos if they have that tab at all it'll be like oh we're giving money to conservation like tiger conservation or elephant conservation but they don't say where it's going they don't say how much they don't there's no data to back it up so you you can't read you can't believe everything you read on the internet right you can't yeah. <laughs> just believe them that they're donating the money so uh yeah those are the big differences aza zoos are extremely strict and overall really really great places and you know by paying to go there your money is going to be going towards conservation and i do have a number here too only 10 percent of the zoos in the United States, at least, are AZA accredited. Whoa. Yeah, there are 238 accredited a AZA zoos, which seems like a lot, but there's like over 2,000 zoos around the country. Uh, so, And some of them are actively trying to be accredited, and they are decent places to go. But it's hard to distinguish them between the roadside zoos if they don't have that AZA seal under their name. Yeah. And... I googled this while we were chatting. It is a U.S. accreditation, but in Canada we have CAZA, which is the same the same accreditation just for Canadian zoos. Yeah, and the AZA there are a f handful of AZA accredited zoos in other countries, like outside of Canada, more like in countries that don't have their own accreditation programs. Like I think there's one in Belize or something, but. Uh, there are very, very, very few of them. I think there's like between three and five uh, in other countries. And I think most of them are in Central or Latin America. So hmm. yeah. I have to admit, I've had like a bit of an aversion to going to zoos like in general in life, because I think it's hard because I think a lot of people have this assumption that like all zoos are bad, like no matter what, just like don't support the zoo industry and so it's interesting to hear that like there are actual positive benefits as long as there's a governing body making sure that those like positive benefits are actually being focused on and I totally get the feeling of like not wanting to see animals in captivity and all that but we have to remember not to anthropomorphize wildlife uh, which mm. means putting our own human feelings and how we would feel in certain situations in the minds of these animals. So a lot of these animals thrive in 
like a zoo setting, especially when they're given a lot of enrichment, they're given a naturalistic place to live, they're given the perfect nutrition, they're given mates, they're given um, everything that they want, everything that they would want in the (laughs) wild, as well as ample space that they would need to be happy. And to me, it's no different than having like an indoor cat that you like supply all their needs for them. You know, they're happy. Yeah. And uh, some some species don't do well in zoos yet because there's still some research going on on um, maybe why they become anxious or don't want to breed or, you know, different things. But the vast majority, there's been so much research into the specific behavior of these animals, um, like their psyche and the very specific requirements that they need and what they would receive in the wild. And then the zoos supply that. So just because us as humans wouldn't want to be kind of stuck in one general area, a lot of these animals, their natural area that they would live in the wild is that size or smaller than than the exhibit. Mm. So nothing has really changed other than them receiving good care and being monitored very closely. Yeah. Sometimes my partner is like, I think Crumpet needs to go outside and like run free and feel what it's like to run full tilt. And I'm like, she does not. She's like completely happy. Like she is living her best life. That's another thing I could just go on a rant about is uh, outdoor Same. cats. Same. Oh, Katie knows. And Katie also knows I'm a hardcore like not for outdoor cats like they should just know there are so many outdoor cats in my neighborhood and i am not it's, and it's bad for everyone it's bad for the cat and it's bad for like the ecology outdoors there, like, yeah just... there have been hundreds of small mammal and bird species that have gone extinct or are close to extinction because of outdoor cats and yeah. it's so bad and a, an outdoor domestic cat lives an average i think of like 8 years less than indoor cats and then they're usually killed very traumatically <laughs> it's yeah. just not i take loki I outside on like leashed walks so your cat <laughs> can go outside like you can have like a little uh like a cat patio where they can experience like outside or like an enclosed area Uh, So they could still kind of like lay in the sun and in the grass, but they can't like kill a bunch of birds or meet with the cat next door, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So how, okay, maybe this is obvious because like I would Google it, but what is the best way for people to find out if a zoo is AZA accredited or to find a list of accredited zoos because they'd like to go and support one? Right. So a zoo will have a like a seal or a banner that says that they're AZA accredited. Uh, If you are a little nervous about looking for that or if you don't know what it looks like, if you go to the AZA website, they do actually have a like a, a map of the country and of the United States. I know you guys are in Canada and you can type in your zip code or you can search state by state to find which Um, AZA zoos are located around there. So if you don't know if if the zoo near your city is accredited, you can literally just look up your zip code and it'll tell you which zoos near you are actually accredited. Are fake AZA zoos something we need to be worried about? I have not seen any like roadside zoos claiming to be AZA accredited. They will use a lot of the same wording like concert like how they're conservation based and they're donating money and but they it's it's highly illegal to use that AZA banner and I'm sure it does happen but I think they get shut down pretty quickly by the AZA or they get sued or something and since it's such a big I don't want to call it a corporation but a big governing body that I think these smaller like roadside zoos stay away from that and instead they use like like the kind of advertising and wording to try to lure tourists in rather than yeah kind of like how in Asia there will be like sanctuaries that may not actually be sanctuaries the biggest thing to look for in roadside zoos and the rescues or rehabilitation or whatever they're calling themselves is you shouldn't be going anywhere that allows you to touch the animal directly, not being able to feed them directly unless you're 
that one's a little harder because some AZA zoos do allow you to feed like the giraffes and stuff while being monitored by zookeepers and they're giving you education on the giraffe, but it's at a very specific time each day. It's their natural diet. But if they just allow you to like buy food and feed them to the animals, it's generally not a great thing. And uh, rescues, like ethical rescues and rehab programs that are under this association do not breed. They will not breed their animals. That is not what they're meant to do. They're there to rescue these animals and give them homes after they've gone through something that keeps them from being released into the wild. Yeah. So zoos, um, AZA zoos do have breeding programs, but they're conservation-based. But roadside zoos like Tiger King um, is probably the most (laughs) famous one, do breed their animals so that they have the cubs and then they use the cubs to lure in the tourists and they allow them to bottle feed them and pose with them for pictures and it kind of keeps stalking their their park. So that's just, if you see that happening, that's a place that you want to avoid for sure. We obviously have to talk about Tiger King. I'm sure when this show was released, um, you had a field day online. But just for people who may not know, at the start of the pandemic, it was March 2020, everyone was at home, Netflix dropped a show called Tiger King, and it had a literal grip on North American viewers. According to the measurement company Nielsen, the show had roughly 34 million unique viewers who watched the series in the first 10 days of its release, which is wild. It brought roadside animal attractions and zoos to the public eye in a massive way. It was pretty shocking to me, actually, because like, I don't know that I've seen roadside zoos like that, at least personally in Canada. It seems to be like a very American, maybe Southern American thing. It's, um, it's very much an American thing. They do exist. I don't know about Canada, but they are all over uh, Southeast Asia too, especially. Yeah, I think what it is, I actually think I've read about this before. I think Canada has different laws and restrictions around like what quote-unquote exotic animals can be brought into the country and so maybe that's why we don't see as much of it here but yeah watching the show myself like I felt that there were some really troubling displays of animal abuse Um, but interestingly the show like doesn't focus that much on that aspect like it's definitely part of the narrative but it's not the focus of the show they focus more on these like characters Joe Exotic and his legal battles and of course the intriguing Carol Baskin I do think this was a huge missed opportunity for them to talk about a very important issue. 100%. But instead, they went down the road of sensationalism because that is what makes money. <laughs> Anyways, my main takeaway from it was that these roadside zoos should be avoided. <laughs> yeah, 100% they should be avoided. And I actually didn't watch Tiger King mm. because I knew it was going to make me so mad. And I already knew the fight between Joe Exotic and Carol Baskin because I was living in Sarasota, Florida at the time, which is about an hour away from Carol Baskin's park. And I, yeah, one of my vet tech friends did an internship there. So she personally knew Carol Baskin. And when she got, yeah, I know, when she got back from that, she was telling me everything, all the dirty details about Joe Exotic and Carol Boston because it was actively going on. And this was like a few Yeah, this was a few years before Tiger King came out. So I was like, oh my God. So I already knew the story and or the main story. And I just knew I didn't really want to see the rest of it. So yeah, um, I just didn't. I didn't watch it. But I know generally what it's about. But a side note, did you guys hear that they actually found Carol Baskin's husband? Yes, (laughs) I did hear this. He was like somewhere with his like a mistress or something like that. He was in with his mistress in Costa Rica, which is literally what Carol has been saying from day one that he took his like private plane. People don't believe women. (laughs) 
how many just times do we have Baskin. to go through I this? I mean, granted, Carol Baskin just kind of has one of those personalities that you just kind of question does. everything that she <laughs> says. I will say, like, watching the show myself, I think there was, like, an undertone of, like, her having better motivation mm-hmm. in, like, running her park than what you see from Joe Exotic. Right, that- right means anything yeah her her heart (laughs) is definitely in the right place uh i just don't know from her i can't recommend it personally unless i've been there myself and had a because i i do have i have a degree in i don't know if i mentioned this i do have a degree in biopsychology and animal behavior i also did um a year-long uh thesis project where i did my own independent research on something that like i wasn't copying someone else's research i had to do my own on a topic and my thesis and a lot of my classes involved closely observing animal behavior and then researching what their normal behavior should be and then kind of deciding like if they're under duress or not. And sometimes it can be very subtle. So that's something that I always look for when I'm going new places. Even AZA zoos, I look for that. And I have family down in Florida still, so I'm a... Uh, Give Carol Basket a visit the next time that I'm there. <laughs> Please follow up with us if you do. I will. I will, for sure. <laughs> so I know you didn't watch the show, but I mean, I'm sure you saw the impact online like many oh, yeah. of us did, yeah. especially at that time when we were all like in lockdown. Do you have a sense of like what kind of impact the show may have had on animal tourism in the U.S. or perceptions of animal tourism? Do you think like it may have accidentally alerted people to like things to avoid or what's your sense there? I think the people who created the show did want to slip in that these things are bad and that we shouldn't be participating in them. But because they didn't dive deep enough into them, I think there was more of a negative backlash against zoos in general, which isn't great because again AZA's user are awesome and they have saved dozens of species from the brink of extinction but I think it also brought a lot of attention to like selfie tourism and there's a lot of tourism around lion and tiger cubs and like holding them and feeding them and all that stuff and then just like the weird culture in America of wealthy people collecting large exotic animals like it's a thing here and it's very strange and I don't understand it so as we wrap up I'd love to hear about some of your favorite AZA accredited zoos I know you've written about bush gardens in Florida what is it that they're doing right and are there any others that you would like to shout out Yeah, so Bush Gardens is very unique because it's also a theme park, but they, again, are a nonprofit. So all the money that they make goes back into paying their employees, and they do a lot of really great conservation work. And a lot of people don't know, and this may turn some people off, they are under the same big company as SeaWorld. But (laughs) Bush Gardens does not have that... uh, bad history (laughs) behind them and they do uh, a lot of research there because they are AZA accredited so they do that research they do that conservation work they have like a stellar veterinary program and I think at this point they also have like a tv show where they dive into like all the animals that live there and the vet I think it's a show specifically about the veterinarians that work there so they're really great and I did notice when I was there, I've been there a few times, I lived like 45 minutes away from it. They keep animals that have like very sensitive hearing and and are scared easily away from the rides. And they're kind of in their own separate like zoo area. But then there are some animals that are, I don't want to say interactive with the rides, but you could see them as you're on the rides, which is just like totally unique and super fun. Like, uh, I think there's a roller coaster there called Cheetah Run, and it's over a giant cheetah exhibit. So, and they're like totally unbothered by it. And they just, they're cats, so they mostly sleep all day. But you're like on this giant roller coaster, and you can see the cheetahs, and it's just like really fun. And I think it's a unique way to provide that much needed education about the animals that are there. 
I currently live in Seattle and the uh, Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle is one of the absolute best zoos that I have ever visited. It's amazing and highly recommend that to anybody who's out here. Uh, There is, if you're visiting Seattle, there is something called like the City Pass and I know some other major cities have it where you pay like a certain amount of money and it comes with tickets to certain attractions throughout the city and it saves you money and um, Woodland Park Zoo is one of them. There's also the Seattle Aquarium Um, and so the AZA is Association of Zoos and Aquariums so aquariums can be accredited as well and that aquarium is very small like it's a lot smaller than people think because they kind of expect it to be this massive place but it is one of the best aquariums again that I've ever seen like some of the most beautiful exhibits a lot of really great education they have a whole area for marine mammals um, especially the ones that live naturally in the area so there's a lot of wildlife up here in Washington state and so they have got like the sea lions the fur seals the otters like and it's awesome and they really focus more on Pacific Northwest wildlife or sea life and and um just they some like freshwater uh aquatic life as well instead of doing a lot of like like fish from around the world kind of thing because like every aquarium kind of does that and that's like their most unique thing is they really focus on uh, pacific northwest but if you're looking for a really big aquarium to visit like a really big really impressive aquarium the ripley's believe it or not aquarium in gatlinburg tennessee is a huge tourist attraction there. It is AZA accredited and it is, I think, the biggest aquarium in the country, if not the world, but it is, it's huge and it's very impressive. Well, I did some quick Googling for our Canadian <laughs> alpaca pals. The Toronto Zoo is accredited and we also have a Ripley's Aquarium here in Toronto and it is also accredited. So there's two that you can hit in Toronto that are good yeah. choices. And also if you're if you're near me, you can go to African Lion Safari, which is also CAZA accredited. accredited. Awesome. I double check that too. Yeah. I think there's also an, an accredited zoo in... Uh, Vancouver, like just north of yeah. where I am. So I think yeah. I think a buddy of mine used to work there before moving down to down to Washington. So um, I heard I've heard good things about that one, but I haven't visited personally. Okay, so you're the first person we're chatting with who lives in Seattle, <laughs> and so I wanted to ask if you have some Seattle tips for us because Seattle is high on my list of places to go in the U.S. that I haven't been yet. Um, So yeah, give us some insider tips. I love it here. We get a lot of like negative stereotypes about the weather here, especially, but it doesn't get that cold. Um, Like we rarely get snow. And when it rains, it's usually like kind of the misty, like overcast misty. So it's like not hard enough to even really need an umbrella or anything. So Spring and fall are absolutely stunning. The weather is perfect as far as times to come. But Pike Place Market, definitely worth the hype. Really fun. I would also go to visit the Salmon Ladder because salmon is like a big part of like the culture here (laughs) because it's where they go to spawn. (laughs) The Salmon Ladder is literally like this. It looks like a ladder, like a V-shaped ladder that connects two bodies of water where the salmon go to breed and then go back out to sea. And the salmon actually like hop up the ladder and climb over the ladder to reach the two different sides. And it's super cool because salmon naturally will like hop up like waterfalls and stuff to reach the fresh water. And this is just a more like controlled way of doing it so that they can ensure more of them are able to reach there and and breed because unfortunately salmon are disappearing uh, from overfishing for the most part. And uh, so it's just a way to, to help them out a little bit, but it's really, really cool to see. It's mostly in like late summer through the fall and um, there'll be different species of salmon depending on uh, which time you go, but it's, it's very, very cool. So where can people find you if they want to learn more? 
So uh, you can find my podcast. It's called Humane Nature, like spelt like human nature, but with the E, humane, anywhere that you get podcasts. But I also have a blog website that you can visit. The podcast is more diving really deep into individual animal tourism activities. And while I have a little bit of that on my blog as well, I do more of like travel. So comparing AZA zoos, roadside zoos, or like how to navigate animal cafes in Tokyo. Um, They're just a little shorter. And if you enjoy reading content as well. But then I also have like just general like travel articles And you can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Stumble Safari, which is my blog's name. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with a fellow traveler. Make sure you're following us on all your favorite podcast apps. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can leave us a five-star review or support us on Patreon. Anything you can do to support the show will help to foster meaningful change throughout the travel industry. Curious Tourism, the Responsible Travel Podcast, is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced and edited by Katie Lohr in Canada's Toronto area. Our theme music is called Night Stars by Wolf Saga, David R. Miracle, and the Chippewa Travelers. If you want to reach out to us, check the show notes for all the info you need. I'll see you in two weeks, but in the meantime, stay curious. <laughs>